Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, no way, we were definitely laughing at you. This is episode 113, I'm Tin and and this week as Prime Minister and a public service warning as to why you shouldn't eat those packets of silica gel, yes that is what happens, Theresa May asks the EU to treat her with the same respect she's given them, I look forward to the EU ignoring her solidly for two years, sending only their most stupid officials to meet with her and then blame her for a ton of things they've imagined she's done. It should be only a matter of days before May sitting in a room with a pigeon in a suit with an EU badge on it, trying to work out why it's got a note on its foot, telling her she needs to stop making things difficult by asking to drain the English Channel and make it a massive ball pit, or there'll be no deal. Yes, according to the worst possible punishment in the tree community, the Daily Express, Friday's speech was Theresa May's finest hour, which is interesting as she spoke for less than eight minutes. Is that an indication that the rest of her life is so shoddy that that hour containing those eight minutes constitutes the best hour she's ever had? Or did she do something amazing after those eight minutes, like, I don't know, beat Dark Souls on the PlayStation 4 on its plus 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 difficulty setting? Or is it just that it's worth celebrating and praising the whole 52 minutes where she wasn't ruining everyone's day, and she could maybe be encouraged to do more of that until we finally never have to hear from her again? Who knows, as the eight minutes was solid drivel, of the type that would be hard to wipe away from her nose with even a metal scouring pad. On Wednesday, President of the EU Council and compressed Willem Dafoe, Donald Tusk, said that May's Chequers Brexit plan will not work. You know, for all the reasons it was never going to work and everyone said it wouldn't work. He may as well have held up a bike that had been mangled by a combine harvester and told everyone that it's clear that you can't do the Tour de France on that. With Chequers dead in the water, everyone held their breath wondering what May would do. Would it be that she'd just announce a new plan she called Smeckers, which is exactly the same but in Comic Sans? Was she going to try her best to do the floss and hope that the mal-coordinated, almost hypnotic movements would distract everyone? Or possibly she'd finally just give up and quit as Prime Minister, causing everyone to be overjoyed until they realised what the other options were and then became really, really upset. But no, instead May summoned the BBC to Downing Street like a shit sorcerer to tell Britain that nothing has happened, no progress has been made and hey, guess what, it's all the EU's fault for not telling us what was wrong with her plan except for all the times they did over the last two years. 
And if that won't get us a good deal, nothing will, right? I mean, I've definitely thought about walking into my bank and throwing a crayon drawing of me in a massive mansion house straight on their table and saying, hey, if you don't give me a mortgage based on this plan, then you're the ones being unreasonable and you need to buck up your ideas, dickheads. Many of the papers have backed May's speech uh, when they came out on Saturday, saying things like the Daily Mail's The May Ultimatum, which makes no sense. I mean, what's her ultimatum? You think of a solution or I definitely won't? Or the Times called her Defiant May and said she raised stakes with a no-deal threat to the EU. Brilliant! Watch out, EU! If you don't sort things out, we'll punch ourselves in the face. How are you going to handle that, huh? Several ministers have also backed Theresa May, including Funko Pop in between her, James Brokenshire, a man who worked with a divided Northern Ireland to help make sure they continue to not have a government and earn money for it. And Ming the Farcillus and Transport Secretary Chris Grayling, a man who this week defended the rail industry's comments that disruptions in spring were caused by no one taking charge by saying that it wasn't his fault. Incredible. Solid backup there, mate. Health Secretary and rubber chicken Jeremy Hunt warned the EU not to mistake politeness for weakness, but forgot to say what they're meant to view ignorance, rudeness, downright stupidity and a general lack of awareness as. And Brexit Secretary and Red Skull Dominic Raab said there wasn't going to be another snap election, although as he said it, he must have been aware that he'd be the last to know if there was going to be, and there's every chance May would have called someone to announce it while he was being interviewed. Rob still backed the Prime Minister, though, and said that the UK has to keep its cool and that it does take two to tango. Yes, yes it does, Dominic, but the EU have 27, which is actually 13 dancing couples with a reserve, while the UK are all by ourselves standing by the wall looking at our phone and hoping for the best. May's speech caused the pound to fall, making me wonder if those extra edges on the £1 coin were actually put in place for when it becomes completely useless as currency and we can sharpen them to use as tiny throwing stars to catch poison-resistant rats for dinner. But never fear, Labour have stepped into the fray to say they would back a people's vote on Brexit, which is great news, except that the vote they would back would have absolutely no Remain option, just whatever deal the government is proposing, if they are and will ever, and a no-deal option. And that's an interesting choice, not least because Labour leader and background character from a Shane Meadows film, Jeremy Corbyn, said last week that no-deal was not an option, and now he's saying it definitely actually would be one of the only options. But also because we currently have the option of a non-plan by the government versus is a no deal, so a people's vote with those options would have less importance than a primary school mock election where the winning team get to keep a drawing of a logo that they make themselves. It's like promising to release a long band film that everyone's wanted to see, only for everyone to attend the screening and find most of it's been censored with a huge black marker throughout. Shadow Brexit Secretary and grown-up Flat Stanley, Keir Starmer, has already disagreed and said that the party wouldn't be ruling out a referendum that had staying in the EU as an option in it, and that all options were on the table. But he wouldn't say he was invited to eat at the table, because yet again it's another Labour conference that feels as if Mike Lee directed Mean Girls. Meanwhile, Shadow Equality Secretary and woman whose name makes it sound like she did it at twilight, Dawn Butler, has caused controversy by approvingly mentioning the Liverpoolian Labour councils of the 1980s who deliberately set a spending budget in excess of that given by Thatcher's government that then led them into a financial crisis. The Labour centrist group Progress and the Conservatives have both called her out, the latter much preferring councils to go into financial crisis via the government's doing. Butler said that when it comes to austerity, it was better to break the law than break the poor, which is a great tagline for a new Robin Hood film, but it's a foolish comment when up against a government whose current Brexit plans appear to involve doing both. 
On Friday, when no one was paying attention, the government announced that not all members of the Windrush generation would be granted British citizenship if they had a criminal record or failed to provide the right documents. Basketball with ears Sajid Javid has said all refusals follow careful and deliberate consideration, but as the Home Office are the ones who destroyed the Windrush landing cards in the first place, this is not only going against what they promised, but it's also hugely unfair. It would be like a food safety inspector going to a restaurant and taking a huge dump on their plate and then shutting the place down due to evidence of human faeces in the dinner. Javid has also infuriated Brexiteers by saying that EU citizens will have visa-free access for more than two years if we go through a no deal, as long as they show a passport and have a criminal record check. And I mean, that makes sense. Who else would the government have to hire to process all the paperwork and deport British citizens? And lastly, at a Leave Means Leave rally in Bolton, an event for people too scared to go on a saga holiday, Maud Perineum Nigel Farage told an audience of already mostly dead people that a no Brexit was no problem, proving once again that ignorance is bliss, and if you are capable of being completely unaware of everything around you, then chances are, aside from realising you're absolutely no longer relevant except to those who checked out of the Brain Activity HQ some time ago, nothing much matters. Meanwhile, the current UKIP leader and only person entirely composed of double chin, Gerard Batten, said that the party needs to stand up for free speech against the politically correct thought police, unaware that based on his ideas, I think he'll be pretty safe from any imaginary authority that can scan minds anyway. A much-reported highlight of the conference was a stall selling condoms with Nigel Farage's face on them, which I guess are for when you want to con someone into sleeping with you with a lot of lies, fuck them as badly as possible, leave quickly without thought while causing them repercussions for years after. Or, more likely, they're just for people who need an effective contraceptive, and let's face it, Nigel's sewer-soaked waffle cone of a face should stop you having sex for years. Oh yeah, here we go again. What's happening with you and your face, lovely listeners? Well, I hope you are well and dandy. I've I've had to put the heating on today, and I can't help but feel that I've already lost a battle without putting up enough of a fight. I mean, we all know the true British way is to only put the heating on as a very, very last resort after wearing every single bit of clothing, wrapping yourself in all of the furniture and old vegetable skins, and wetting yourself and repeatedly breathing in the warm fumes before breathing them out again into your basic cocoon. And only when when that doesn't work and you've lost all feeling in your hands and fingers and chest and brain, then and only then should you put the heating on and only for an hour or so because otherwise it is a terrible waste. Um, but no, here I am. Heating has been firmly on for hours and I'm very sorry that I've let you all down. I fully expect Sajid Javid to knock on my door with deportation letters anytime now for not upholding British values whatsoever. Um, but it's cold, isn't it? It's, de- it's definitely autumn, isn't it? Definitely. I do. It's a weird admittance again against British values. I prefer the American term fall because at this point in 2018, it really, really feels like we're involved in a sharp decline of everything. Um, Actually, I say that, uh, but I've just had a very lovely weekend of gigs and radio things as well. And I don't want to boast too much, guys. I know you're going to get really jealous on this hashtag humble brag. um, But on Friday, I got to spend £70 for a very special train ticket from Leeds to London that, and get this, uh, that allowed me to cosplay as the toilet attendant slash corridor guard for an entire three hours. I know, right? I mean, while other chumps had spent money being able to sit in a seat, what what losers, uh, I was able to um, hang around standing up by the doors, getting the true experience of what it would be like if I had a job that didn't even exist. Oh, properly great. It was just good times. And they even delayed the whole journey by 30 minutes, so I get to do it for longer as well. I mean, seriously, forget your escape rooms or your secret cinema shit. LNER has got the ultimate fun experience, absolutely nailed well done guys well fucking done 
Um, but look, enough of my track record. Um, thank you again for listening to the show. And hello to all of you new lot who jumped aboard the uh, Parpol Bro train uh, next week, which I should add is free for all and entirely first class, but the toilets are awful. Um, but hello to everyone uh, new who started on this show uh, last week. And if you enjoyed, please do stick around and recommend this to others who might like it or others who won't like it, but tell them anyway as a sneaky punishment for their obviously terrible audio taste. Um, big thank you this week, huge thank you this week to Sam and Anita for donating to the Kofi account, which you can do too at www.20tablet. Everyone knows that bit, don't they? Woo woo woo. Uh, ko ficom forward slash bro if you enjoy this show enough to send me £3 for a coffee, which is actually needed this week, as I found an old pot of instant coffee in my cupboard this morning and it had gone mouldy. I didn't even know it could do that. It's it's dried. It's dried stuff. How could it do that? I mean, yes, I did think about drinking it anyway because I am that tired because our daughter has turned six months and she seems to have uh, basically celebrated that by having a six-month party um, and waking up every single hour of the last two nights. I am dead inside. Uh, so I did nearly think about drinking that because uh, I just thought, well, what could be more comforting than a warm cup of furry coffee? Mm-mm, warm and furry. That is comfort right there. Um, basically, what I'm saying is please... Please go to Kofi for some coffee donations desperately in need. Um, or if you want to join the gang of monthly affiliates, then you can head to patreon.com for a slash bro um, to give me even $1 of support, which is about 76p in GBP at the moment after the, uh, the pound fell the other day. So you can either send that to me uh, or you could use your money to buy 76 copies of the Usborne Spotter's Guide to Shells um, for Kindle. Uh, that's your call, people. Absolutely your call. And a mega thank you this week uh, also to Sophie, who not only donated to the Kofi, but also sent an email to the almost mouldy uh, partly political broadcast at gmail.com account. Um, I, I mean, it's barely it's barely used that. It's almost new. It still smells. I, I say it's almost mouldy. It smells like a new car. Um, anyway, she sent an email to that account about how much she enjoyed last week's show which absolutely made my day that was very lovely thank you Sophie and that email account has had to have a tidy up as then a few of you emailed in with nice comments as well as some great suggestions for guests who I'm currently trying to book and I'm not saying I crave your gratification like some sort of attention seeking leech but I am a stand up comedian and that is pretty much my entire job and life so all your tweets and emails are a total joy to read Um, please please keep sending them about anything just do that just let me know uh, I'm needed otherwise you know otherwise my life is mouldy coffee who wants that who wants that um, oh and of course uh, if you want to review this show um, on your podcast apps please do all of that as it helps other people know it is worth a listen and far more importantly and more shallowly uh, which may or may not be a word um, it also persuades those pod apps to feature the show on their main pod appy featurey page may or may not be words um, and yeah that's how iTunes work uh, like a sort of bandwagon jumping sound fiends you know they only make things popular if they're already popular what bastards and me gratification craving sucker is absolutely fine with that as long as you will give it a review and allow them to do such shallowly things um some other very quick admin bits for you i was contemplating splitting the show into two shows a week so one show is all the comedy stuff and the other is just interview stuff uh, both around 30 minutes and i thought about doing that partly because of a few comments on the survey over summer and partly because the people at acast suggested it uh, and i've got no willpower so i went oh you've said it probably will work um but based on a few responses on facebook and twitter it seems like the majority 
majority, and by majority, I mean about six people who bothered to reply to the polls on either of those pages. Um, seems like the majority wouldn't want that. So, would you want that majority, or would you not want that majority? Um, shall I do a Labour-style people's vote, where you can either vote to have two podcasts a week or 12 podcasts a week, with absolutely no option just to keep things as they are? Um, let me know. I'm always keen to do the least work possible, so I'll say that this is going to stay as it is for a bit until I can work out a way, really, to do the the podcast that I reckon would be most fun and least ever would just be a sort of John Cage tribute podcast that has absolutely no sound on it at all every episode for like a year would be brilliant wouldn't it but um, until I do that this podcast will stay as it is um other admin that I regularly forget to do is thank Cat Day on this show, despite her every week typing up the linear liner notes of all the links and who to follow for me to then pop on the website. Um, if you haven't checked that out, partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, all the linear notes are on there of all the links that uh, me and the guests always recommend, uh, as well as loads of other stuff uh, and often the transcriptions that are done uh, by my wife too, so thank you to her. Cat, um, I was going to say, is um, she is a great writer and it's also worth checking out her sceptical science blog at Chronicle Fly com or follow her on Twitter at Chronicle Flask uh, for all of that so thank you to her um, and lastly I've been plugging Next Up Comedy loads uh, partly because I have three comedy shows on there but also because they are an excellent bunch and they're doing a promotion boost of their fantastic subscription site with over 100 comedy specials including people like Ed Byrne, Miles Jupp, Fern Brady and unfortunately me just to sort of ruin the quality um, and it's only £3.50 a month but you get a free trial month first uh, so I've popped a link on the pod bio if you like laughing from your face and you want to check it out. Oh, and the Kids Politics Show, uh, sorry, lastly, one more bit of admin, I keep forgetting admin this week, um, the Kids Politics Show that I'm doing with Tat and Spiller from Simple Politics is at Hartford Theatre Saturday at 4pm, which I believe though has sold out, so I'm mainly just telling you to boast a lot. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Check my, uh, check my shit out. Clearly a goddamn legend in Hartford amongst um, children, which is a bit weird. I don't even know anything really about Hartford. Is it land of organs and cars? Is that why it's called that? No idea. It's not that far from where I live. I should probably pay more attention. Anyway, look, there may well be tickets available on the day if you live nearby and you have children. They don't even have to be your children if you want. And you want to teach them about politics. So do drop the box officer line and see if you can come along. And if you can't come along, ha ha, that's, uh, that's your problem for liking someone like me who's clearly a Hartford legend, a heartened Allegedford. Oh, and I know last week's show was really quiet and I'm very sorry. I know lots of you wrote in to tell me you couldn't hear it on the bus and that essentially ruined bus journeys for the rest of your life and now you can never go on a bus again. Um, the reason is, is A, because I'm shit, and B, because I've learnt a new technique for amplifying stuff so it's all louder in your ears. But last week when I did that, it made this clicking noise come uh, throughout the podcast as I was being heckled by a particularly uh, angry dolphin. Um, so uh, what, then I decided it would be better to just make make it quiet and get rid of the dolphin and then all of you got sad so anyway this week it'll be loud um and hopefully there'll be no dolphin and then i'm sure many of you will write in to tell me uh, that you've now gone partially deaf and i'm to blame for that so uh, hopefully uh, it will work let me know maybe don't let me know maybe just um, deal with it um okay on this week's show i am speaking to steve crawshaw all about protests and what makes an effective one and because steve is among many other things director of policy and advocacy for freedom from torture i also interviewed interviewed him all about that which i'm going to be releasing as a separate 15 to 20 minute podcast later in the week if you fancy a listen
person. Yes, I've already gone back on my promise to just do one podcast a week. Yes, I'm a big fat liar. Yes, I am for turning, but only if someone else turns me and I'm preferably on a roundabout or a lazy Susan or something that makes it easy and removes all effort. Um, so, Steve Chat is happening. Then there is a look at conference season, uh, what's happened so far, and a return of that awful, awful jingle that none of you like. Uh, there's the quickest Brexit fallout ever because, I mean, really, what? What's the point? It's really, I mean, it's just going to be rubbish. All right, okay. All right, let's just get this over with. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! It's all fucked. Okay, that's done. Let's move on. No, okay, I'm only joking. I mean, a bit. I mean, Brexit negotiations are a mess. The government hasn't got a clue what they're doing, and Labour's plan appears to be to not do anything substantial until the Conservatives mess it up first. And hey, this could be a great tactic. I mean, it could be that as the Conservatives let go of that pram and it falls all the way down the stairs in the train station, Labour are there at the bottom waiting to catch it when everyone's decided that the Tories really shouldn't be allowed near children anymore for so many reasons. Or it could be that with the Brexit deadline getting ever nearer, that Labour turn up just in time to see the pram go over the stairs and then reactively impress no one with their new rules about better grips on pram handles. The EU are saying they can work things out. The government are responding by saying, stop bullying us and let us do what we want to do, like a petulant teenager who's at least 10 years away from realising most people in the world have better shit to do than listen to their whining. And I'm pretty certain what is going to happen is that on the 28th of March 2019, everyone involved is going to be on the Red Bulls, cramming in scribbles to the early hours to meet the deadline in a chaotic mess, leading us to scrape through with a third world country. So let's leave that for a week and instead look at two stories that are related uh, that have both come out in the past few days. One is about the leaked plan by the Initiative for Free Trade, a think tank founded by extremely ill child Daniel Hannan, a man that's famous for rarely thinking but regularly tanking. This plan is a blueprint for a free trade deal between the UK and our buddies in harms, the US, and so far the details appear to be a lot like the TTIP deal that many voted for Brexit to avoid. Only it's worse than that as it would open up the NHS to foreign investment as well as loosen government controls and regulation allowing more power to the hands of businesses, which is partly worrying because I didn't even know businesses have hands, and also it would mean less to workers and consumers, i.e. you and me. Well, okay, I'm mainly a consumer, quite a heavy consumer, but before you know it, we'll suddenly be paying more for less, something that only makes sense for nanotechnology or any time anyone hires me for a show. The IFT have said that they know proposals to sell off the NHS will be unpopular, so they've suggested started by selling off parts of the education sector and legal sector first. And I guess that way, no one will be taught any better and won't be able to win any legal challenges against it. Yeah, I see your moves, IFT. I see them. Now, I said there were two stories, and the second one is about International Trade Secretary and disgraced MP Liam, the disgraced Fox, and he's been privately discussing with the UK's Chief Trade Negotiation Advisor, Crawford Falconer. Yeah, that is his name. Yes, he almost certainly has a plot to genetically engineer something awful to destroy people with. Um, they have discussed scrapping EU food standards as part of the government's EU withdrawal bill, and that means the UK could be importing food from the US like chlorinated chicken, so I don't know, it'll taste like your local swimming pool replete with child weed and hormone-injected beef, so I guess it's beef that's more sad and maybe horny than normal. Who knows? But, hey, look, you might be fine putting absolutely anything in your gob, 
Oi, oi. But if this happens, this will also fit in line with the IFT's US-UK plan. The low prices of shit US food is going to damage British food production and farming and environmental standards. And this is what Brexit is all about for Arden Brexiteers. Removing the red tape, scrapping the regulations and making sure you can chomp on a sheep that's been crying and eating chocolate and doesn't know why or a pig that tastes a toilet duck. Big bucks for businesses, horrible poos for you. And I believe that is going to be the IFT's official tagline for that plan. You're welcome. To be fair, though, foxes do eat out of bins, so I wouldn't be remotely surprised that disgraced Liam would want you and your kids to do the same. I hope someone catches him trying to shag in their neighbour's garden first, though, and he's arrested before any of this can happen. I'm not great at protesting. Oh, like, sure, I've been on many, many protests, uh, starting way back when my parents would take me on anti-Maggie Thatcher, pro-miners strikes, anti-racism and other marches uh, as just a wee toddler, um, all the way to doing gigs to hundreds of people on Westminster Bridge to fight against NHS reform, or, thanks to comedian Mark Thomas, standing outside the London Aquarium demanding to see fish fingers in their natural habitat as part of an opposition against the Sockpar protest law, or flash mobbing the Apple Store with Irish dancing against their tax evasion, uh, to name but a few things that I have done in my protesty days. But for every good bit of protesting I've done, there's been many more times when I've not bothered because it's been raining. Uh, or, in the case of the 2009 G20 protest, I avoided being kettled uh, because I left early to be in for a Sainsbury shopping delivery. Yeah, down with the system until I need lunch. Um, we have a great history of protests in the UK, though. But in recent years, it's become unclear whether or not marching down Whitehall with your favourite witty banner makes any difference against a government who won't even listen to experts or the people they're actively negotiating with. I mean, I'm not a fan of walking around in the cold at the best of times, but if all it's going to do for me is up my step counter, well, yes, then I suppose my doctor would say it's worth it. But are there other better methods for change? I'm being facetious, of course, in that they are often a great way to be amongst people who feel the same way about issues as you and give you a sense of solidarity. And they're also a really rare opportunity to realise just how many chants you don't know the words to and how few public toilets there are in city centres. But can we really say that all the protests against austerity have helped to stop it at all, or Brexit or Trump, even if that balloon was great and it did mean that the shouting arse boil avoided London and bothered people in Oxford instead? And so... As one of you lovely listeners asked me to find out, is protesting still worth it? Or has the internet and a disinterested government made it pointless? Is marching still the way? Or like back in episode 85 when I interviewed Sarah Corbett about craftivism, should we be looking at other ways to get our opposition across? Who better to ask than Steve Crawshaw, a man who has lived through and witnessed many effective and era-changing protests in his life, many of which he's compiled together in his book Street Spirit, The Power of Protest and Mischief, which came out last year. The book brilliantly documents how creativity, humour and sheer will to change can motivate people to fight back. And among other things, there is an example about people simply eating sandwiches to challenge the Thai government. And I've never felt more inspired in my entire life. Steve was a reporter with The Independent in 1986, where he reported on the revolutions happening in Eastern Europe and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And since then, he's been UN Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch, Director of the Office of Secretary General at Amnesty International, and he now works for Freedom from Torture as the Policy and Advocacy Director, um, the latter of which I spoke to him about for an extra podcast that's going to be out later in the week. But for today's show, I wanted to ask Steve about the protests he's been privy to and why those and others that he's written about have worked, and if there's still a glimmer of hope in today's bleak 2018 that fighting back is worth it. Also, a lot more detail on how I can save the people through just eating sandwiches in a fulfilling and, well, also filling way. 
Luckily, Steve very happily answered all of those things. So I hope that you find this inspiring and motivating. And who knows, within a few weeks, we could all be ousting this government through a selection of cheese toasties. Here is Steve. Um, hi, Steve. Um, f- firstly, your book, uh, Street Spirit, I found uh, absolutely brilliant. I found it quite inspiring, which is really nice, um, because one of the things uh, that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, how difficult you find or what do you think the biggest challenges are in persuading people that protesting is worthwhile? Well, thank you for liking it. And yes, it was it was fun to, to write. I mean, I myself, I have to say, I inspired by writing the stories that I wrote of, you know, of people all around the world who've done extraordinary things. And I think far too often are kind of under, under-recognized. You know, people look to the geopolitical reasons why change has come, and in a sense that's quite right. But they often really underestimate the incredible determination, and often in many places courage as well, but above all the determination of, like, we will create change. Um, and, you know, in my own life I've seen extraordinary things happen way back in communist Eastern Europe of just change coming in impossible circumstances. That's kind of molded me as a person, I have to say, of things like which were never supposed to happen, and then they did, even when others said there's no point doing it. And I think that's something that we confront still today regularly, is people say, well, there's not really any point in in going out and doing anything, because I don't think it's really going to change things. Of course, that becomes the block in itself. And I think that's the unlocking that belief, um, which is certainly true in authoritarian regimes, where people think, well, you know, I, I could get killed, I could get arrested, and since they're quite right. But somehow, if enough people break through that, you create incredible change. But that's true in a democratic context as well, where it's not like I might get beaten or arrested or, or jailed or killed, but like, oh, is it really going to make any difference? And so... Managing to unlock that, I think, is the key to, to be honest, almost everything. I mean, some of the situations that you said that you've been in, I mean, because you were in uh, Poland in the in the late 70s, early 80s, and then you were in, uh, in the book you wrote about being in Myanmar as well. I mean, yeah. did you sense that change was going to happen? I mean, what was the, the, the feeling there in those places at the time that, that made you realise that something was about to change? Yeah. So Poland, which you refer to, really was, you know, very early in my life, a kind of a complete aha moment, really, of of extraordinariness. I'd studied Russian. I lived in the then Soviet Union for a year. And, you know, there was a Cold War. We're deep in the Cold War. Leonid Brezhnev, the guy who'd sent tanks in everywhere, was in power at that time. And everybody knew that this system was going to be there kind of forever, as it were. Um, you know, the Berlin Wall had only been up actually uh, well, less than 20 years at that time, um, which seemed forever nonetheless. It seemed all of these things were going to be there forever. And I went to live in Poland. I was studying theatre and then teaching English and living there in the knowledge that this system would just be there forever. Poland wasn't as hardline as the Soviet Union or, for example, East Germany, but it was, you know, it was a one-party state where you were locked up if you had different views from the government. And I was living there for a couple of years, and while I was living there, these extraordinary strikes and really this mass movement of solidarity grew up. Um, in, it broke, especially in, in August 1980, um, and then was across the country. And I still remember, I got the cuttings from that time of newspapers in the West saying, like, well, they're demanding all these political changes, they're demanding this, they're demanding this. is completely unrealistic. It can't possibly be achieved. Everyone knows that can't be achieved because, obviously, the Russians will stop that. And the Poles basically kind of marched past that, like, yeah, if they want to send the tanks in, they can, but, like, we've had enough of that. 
the tanks did come in the following year, but actually that laid the groundwork, the very direct groundwork. Solidarity came back uh, only eight years later, and after that had happened, the democratically elected prime minister came finally in August 1989, only three months after that, the Berlin Wall came down. It's the Berlin Wall when people kind of woke up, if you like, and people said, oh, it's Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader who made everything happen. But for me, that was like, my God, I'm living through just something which totally wasn't supposed to happen, and, and it just had. So once I'd seen that once, then later I became a journalist. I was working in the Independent and had what I still regard as probably the best job in the entire world during 1989 when I was looking after the East Europe work and uh, for the Independent and traveling both before, during and after all of the revolutions and watching the literal and metaphorical walls fall down one after another. And again, the story, the general story was like, oh, isn't it marvelous what Mikhail Gorbachev has done? And it was true that having him as a, a more, if you like, sane Soviet leader, that totally changed things. But, you know, on the other hand, the incredible courage that produced that change. I saw it, for example, in the city of Leipzig in, in October 89. So that was a, a, a month before the Berlin Wall came down. People defied, it had been publicly announced, basically, that there would be guns used against the peaceful demonstrators if they dared to come out. I mean, the, the, the authorities actually said that via a letter in the newspaper. And they praised the uh, Tiananmen massacre, which had happened only four months earlier. So everyone knew what was going to happen. They thought people would stay at home. Actually, more people came out that night than ever before. And I was there that evening. And again, that was another extraordinary moment for me that I'll, I'll never forget of you expect the guns to be fired, but actually at the very last moment, the regime lost its nerve because there were just too many people. And, and that change came. So those kind of things and others like it, Burma, as you say, Myanmar, I also met Aung San Suu Kyi back in the days when she was, when she was genuinely a heroine, which sadly she's not today. Um, but again, her belief at that time, she was a kind of almost not quite under house arrest, but kind of under house arrest. Um, uh, you know, I and my colleague, we got kicked out for the crime of meeting her, which was fine because we'd already, already managed to stash the photographs in our story. Um, but again, that belief that somehow we will create change. And what so many of these things have in common and again, I've kind of collected these over the years, is grand people, very intelligent in their own way, but say, oh, oh, they're so naive. It's a nice idea, but frankly, none of this is ever going to change. And they should just kind of grow up and live with it. And it's the people who reject that and say, no, I'm not going to grow up and live with it because this is bad and this needs to change. And so those are the kind of things that... I've just been so inspired by seeing and that kind of lay behind the book, really, just putting some of those things together. On the one hand, the people who say, oh, nothing's really going to happen here. And on the other hand, those who show the courage to, to create change, which was never supposed to happen. And after it's happened, these grand people always find the geopolitical reasons why it was always bound to happen. Exactly the things that they had never themselves seen coming. I mean, but, but one, I mean, one of those, um, those those stories are absolutely amazing, and I, I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be, uh, particularly sort of in in Poland at the time. That must have been uh, electric. But I mean, w one of the interesting things is a, a lot of those cases, and a lot of the cases you mentioned in the book, are when people are threatened with um, quite extreme, often authoritarian situations, often yeah. violence is is threatened. And I'm sort of reminded of of the Catalonia um, elections, you know, last year when the, you know the there was threats of of soldiers, and and in fact it did happen. 
happened, but people that made people retaliate more and say we're not going to stand for this even more. Do you think, though, that uh, or is there an issue then in sort of, say, current Western society where we don't face these threats? Does that I'm not saying that I want us to be facing these threats, but, you know, do you think that it, it, we're not pushed to protest as much? Uh, does it does it cause a sort of an extreme reaction in people to fight back? Yeah, um, I mean, certainly there is, of course, lots to, to protest against in, in this country. But to, to take your, your first point, you're quite right about Catalonia. It was really interesting. You know, here we've got a democratic country, and yet you had these kind of beatings happening in, in what really were, were I, I think, objectively, you can say, completely unnecessary circumstances. And you rightly describe, and I've talked to people from Barcelona on this, it's really interesting, of saying on both sides of the argument, but the agreement is, yeah, that obviously strengthened the feeling when that happened because that sense of intolerance on one side was like, well, I'm not sure where I stand on the actual debate, but like, I really don't like the fact that you're beating people. And actually the Velvet Revolution in Prague in 1989 in a complicated way, actually it happened because the secret police faked a killing which they thought was gonna they thought was gonna put people off in various complicated ways. Um, it's to do with a journalist who was reporting on things. They thought that would stop the news dead and, and so on. And uh, they, they, they faked the killing and thought that would solve the problem. And actually, the Czechs, who until then had been quite reluctant to come out in large numbers, well, this is really not acceptable. If you've killed somebody... And then two days later, they announced, no, no, he's not dead, actually, after all. But by then, it was too late. The momentum was there. So that sense of strength is there and um, the Serb activist Sergei Popovich uh, has a great phrase who kind of helped bring up, he and his movement helped bring about the fall of Slobodan Milosevic the, um, the Serb ruler and, and warmonger of the 90s um, and he says uh, he's uh, for the one occasion that if you, if I am laughing at you, if, if, if you are beating me and I am laughing at you, you are the loser that idea that kind of Humor, the beating is already a declaration of the loser in some sense. You appear to be the powerful person, but resorted to that violence against nonviolent person is being the loser. So going to your second part of like whether people don't need that to uh, respond. I mean, first, I absolutely don't think so. Clearly, actually, when there are dangers, some people quite fully understandably will be hesitant to go out. So that's that's one thing to say, although it does also call the, cause the additional anger and indignation. But I think that the biggest issue really is somehow just not feeling that it can actually make a difference. Even where people do feel quite strongly, they are persuaded, including by those who themselves never take part in protests of different kinds, and say, oh, it's all just pointless, or it's all this banner-waving, it makes absolutely no difference at all. But actually, we see again and again that it does kind of unsettle even those people who reckon to be unsettled. And, and the protests against Donald Trump, I would argue, are you know, a pretty good example of that. He claims to be absolutely impervious, and of course, in many ways, he does seem impervious to the logic of any kind and on pretty much any issue that you mention um you know he 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 doesn't take a, a humane approach he is 
is wrong on so many issues, whether it's you know, the separation of families or whether it's to respect for the judiciary or from my perspective, working for Freedom from Torture, the idea that he says torture absolutely works. All of these things are shocking. The women's marches that we saw at the beginning of the scene since then, all of these things are important. And I think it's really important. I think it's interesting to see how allergic he was when we had the big anti-Trump demonstrations when he came to London and the uh, you know, the inflatable Trump and all of those things. And he's so thin-skinned at the end of the day. Um, and I think those tr- those protests were absolutely worth doing. I'm not going to say it's going to you know bring an end to Trump's bad behaviour, but it kind of produces an added. Uh, belief in the possibility of change, which itself, I think, leads towards the possibilities of change. And certainly, we've seen it again very much with many of the Trump voters. What I've seen in totalitarian contexts, but applies also in democratic contexts, is humor is this kind of red thread that so often keeps people going. Because, as again, as the same activist, Sergio Popovich often points out, you don't want to get bored when you're going on protests. It's a bit tiring doing it. And so the, the humor and the creativity that goes with it, that kind of creates the buzz and it becomes something which is enjoyable and worth doing in our privileged context in the UK, usually at least uh, without um, you know, violent consequences. I mean, sometimes there are, but more broadly, you don't expect to be taking a risk when you take part in a protest. But the same thing applies in places where it's very dangerous to do it, that humor becomes the kind of often the unlocking factor in those protests. Sure, I I am um, no, I'm a big advocate for uh, humour on March. I think there was there was one of the um, and I, I forget. I think it was one of the protests in Egypt that you mentioned in your book where somebody held a protest sign that simply said, "Please leave, my arm is hurting." And I thought that was one of the most wonderful, yes. most one of the exactly. most wonderful things. Yeah, there was a whole series of those in Cairo. The Egyptians have a fair sense of humour, and the, the, the please leave, which was the main chant, Irhal, you must leave, was the main chant in, in Tahrir Square. And so there was a whole series, as you say, one was my arm is hurting, but one was I recently got married, I need to see my wife, you know, and, and it just kind of <laughs> gave pleasure to the people walking by, and they knew they were part of that community that was creating the change. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting as well. Of, uh, I sort of uh, often feel and, and have felt this doing stand up gigs and things that sometimes humour can remove kind of the, the violence or the tension of a situation. If, yeah, if there's absolutely. a real um, sort of palpable threat of things getting worse or, or, or you know, that, that sometimes humour can really deflate that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to touch on something else that you said. That, uh, I mean, uh, I think I, I feel um, very much in agreement with your statement of people feeling like a protest doesn't do something often then uh, stops them protesting. Because I think one of the big deflating moments for me in my sort of uh, uh, early 20s was going on the big Iraq war march, uh, yes. the one with millions on, and then finding out that we still went to Iraq yes. in war. And I think that was so deflating knowing that all these people had stood up and said, we don't want this. And then the government at the time, led by Tony Blair, still went, oh, we don't care, and did it anyway. Um, yes. and do you think that, that sort of that then puts you off protesting again, doesn't it? Because you think, well, what's the point? I, I, I agree. that I think that was a huge moment for many people in Britain and perhaps elsewhere as well. But like, really, we have millions and the answer is no. Um, and that's certainly also one of the, for me, actually really interesting paradoxes I started to focus on in recent years is that the, it would seem that it's much harder 
to get an authoritarian or repressive regime to change its mind than a democratic government because you know we can that's what we're used to is like democracies respond to pressure and therefore change but the 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 opposite of course is also a little bit true that innately an authoritarian regime is incredibly fragile it kind of secretly knows or not even secretly knows it doesn't have legitimacy so if if millions come out on the street then even a president mubarak in egypt eventually goes again like with burma actually we have a really bad aftermath now but that doesn't take away from the incredible courage and, and impact of what happened back in 2011 um when when mubarak was overthrown by the incredible courage of people whereas and this is true both of the iraq war but it's also true in the u.s um uh, today to some extent. And I definitely believe that we can create change, but also an elected leader who is genuinely elected can say, yeah, you don't like it, but you know what? That's what I've kind of gone with. And if you don't like it enough, then, you know, be my guest. There'll be an election in a year's time, in two years' time, or in three years' time. And they are able simply to push back and say, you know, if I'm wrong and you're right, then you guys will win and I will have to go. And that democratic thing actually gives strength in the positive sense. That's what democracy is about, that you can kind of make stable decisions and choices and move forward and then people don't like it, you move out. But also when you know, vast numbers feel a definitely wrong decision has been taken, whether that be the Iraq war or whether that be a whole bunch of things that Donald Trump is, is doing today, that is a kind of uh, pun not wanted, but uh, you know, a trump card uh, for those for those leaders uh, that they can just say, well, you know, wait for the next election and we'll see what happens. Trump, of course, we are seeing that's interesting as well, where you have the midterms, where you have those different uh, elections for the different um, uh, parts of the political system, whether the presidential or for for Congress, and that puts different pressures on a president which they need to think about. But I think that that certainly is something strong. I think the same applies as in the democracies as in the authoritarian. That often we underestimate how much we can really change. One of the things I quote right at the beginning of the book, actually, I find it such an inspiring message. Um, there was this woman called Asma Mahfouz, very young, I think 24-year-old woman in, in Egypt. Before the demonstrations, the protests in Tahrir Square in Cairo had really gone underway in spring 2011. But they just, you know, there was murmuring of protest, and he was deeply, deeply, Mubarak was deeply unpopular. And there was a tiny demonstration which kind of fizzled out. There were arrests and beatings that didn't go anywhere. And Asimov always did this video from her apartment, which went super viral, basically. I mean, everybody watched it. And she says in that, whoever says it's not worth it because there will only be a handful of people, I want to tell him, you are the reason for this. Sitting at home and just watching us on the news or on Facebook, that is what leads to our humiliation. And I thought that brilliantly encapsulated. She actually went on to say, I can't remember exactly what words, but basically, if you don't come out, you are the problem as much as the secret police who are doing the beating and, and the arresting. And, you know, that's put very sharply in a way that I would never dare to, would never have the moral right to but she of course did have the moral right to say that and that video went so viral that at the next big demonstration a couple of days later millions came out for the first time there were other reasons why it happened but her video is a very significant um, contributing factor now that was in an authoritarian context and i still feel that we're always looking for that kind of energy of like how can we create the change and do we believe it and you know for me personally um 
you know, I guess your listeners may have divided views on this, but for me, Brexit is something which is taking us down a completely blind alley in, in so many different ways. And there's so much kind of denial of, of where that might go. But what's really interesting is to see slightly changing, probably in the last couple of months, I guess. I don't know how you would assess it or how listeners would assess it, but it feels as though it's like, oh, maybe could we kind of take this in another direction where, you know, only six months ago, certainly a year ago, it was like, oh, God, it's, it kind of doesn't make sense, but we can't change it. But there is that, I may well be wrong, but it, what feels as though at least, at the very least, more people are starting to believe that if there is enough pressure for change, and there could be change, and however that's framed as some kind of you know, re-asking some different key questions on, on Brexit, you know, to make them move forward. And I definitely, what anyone who is seeking change on that the big challenge is not how do you make the change it's how do you make enough people believe that that change is realistically achievable and those are two slightly different things that obviously they're very much connected jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Steve in a minute. But first... It's September, October, so it stands to reason that right now it's conference season. That's political conferences, not conference pairs. Although if you plant them around now, they'll be really nice for next August. If you like pairs, that is. And if you don't, then maybe don't do that. Oh, conference season. Yeah, that jingle is back, despite me probably needing to write a better one and absolutely no one ever liking it. And that means, people, that we are knee-deep in conference season, that happy time of the year when the parties get together in all their echo chambers to decide on all the things they'll U-turn on over the next year. 
Do you remember last year's conferences? Do ya? Do ya? When there was still a blind sense of hope that someone would have a clue what they were going to do in a year's time. Do ya? Do you remember? Do ya? Do you remember when Vince Cable said he'd lead the Lib Dems to power? And now here we are a whole year later and he's mainly looking for someone else to lead because he doesn't like it anymore. Do you remember? Do you remember when UKIP hatched their new leader, Henry Bolton, who waved a tiny flag on stage in September and then in Feb it turned out that was a flag of surrender as he's given a vote of no confidence like most of the UK have done with his entire party. And then, do you remember, do you remember last year, Labour announced that they had changed the political mainstream, and they had, as before that point, the political mainstream weren't spending every day trying to eat themselves. And then, Theresa May coughed at the Conservatives for what felt like a lifetime, proving it wasn't just her policies that were hacky. Oh, do you remember? Good times. So, what will this year's political jerk circles bring? Well, sadly, I couldn't make any in person, so here is a little review from the sidelines of conference happenings so far. First up, the Liberal Democrat Conference, which I mentioned partly last week. As a result, giving them more press coverage than they've had since 2010. It says something when you type into Google Lib Dem Conference 2018 highlights, and the only thing that comes up is their own website. So forgive me for not enlightening you on content past what I mentioned last week, which was almost exclusively just people telling the conference that they didn't want to be Lib Dem leader, with Vince Cable saying that he didn't either, and I just wonder if it's going to end up coming down to a random selection like jury service, where a member of the public will wake up in a few weeks' time to find a letter saying that they're going to have to serve as leader for the next year and they're going to have to find a reasonable excuse as to why they can't lead the politically homeless. The closing conference speech by Cable though was mainly about cementing what the Lib Dem stands for the next year will be. And according to that speech it seems to be mainly attacking Amazon and companies that avoid paying taxes by reforming company taxation for the digital age, taking on housing developers, changing capital gains tax uh, from assets and scrapping inheritance tax as well as changing the way pension tax relief works for the most wealthy. Then, Cable also pushed for a second referendum on Brexit, surprise, while trying to describe what the Brexiteers are doing as an erotic spasm. But instead, he said, exotic spresm, which isn't a thing. The closest thing that it is, is a, a word that I found called sprem, which according to Urban Dictionaries is how idiots who can't spell, spell sperm. So an exotic sprem makes it sound not too different from an erotic spasm, but with more favourable language. He referred to both the Tories and Labour as cults, but somehow didn't mess up that wording. And he said Boris Johnson was like Trump because all of Vince's observations are as original as his policies. It wasn't a bad speech, but there was nothing surprising in it apart from his inability to say erotic spasm, which isn't the first time a Lib Dem leader has been uncomfortable with sexual content. At least this time, unlike Tim Farron's homophobic statements, Vince was trying to condemn Brexiteers fucking an entire country, which I guess is overall prudish or fully inclusive depending on which way you look at it. Still, we'll now all remember it as an exotic spresm, and hopefully one day soon you'll be able to order that cocktail in one of those fancy pubs where no one really likes each other. I fully expect next year's conference to involve Cable offering to pay someone to lead instead of him it before pulling out half sentences from Conservative and Labour policies and then sticking them together like a Bowie song and then telling everyone about how Brexit is a furious wank but pronounces it spurious crunk and everyone thinks he's into late 90s hip-hop. Following the Lib Dem conference was the UKIP conference, which took place in Birmingham, despite, you know, all of them supposed no-go areas for white people in Birmingham that racists assume actually exist. I mean, was this their way of embracing their fear, or were the UKIP delegates so old that heading to brilliantly multicultural Brum was just the coach driver's joke at their expense, and they'll read about where they were later and cry? The less said about this conference, the better, uh, though I don't want to be condemned as blocking freedom of speech like them politically correct thought police do. So let's just run through a few of Gerard Batten's main points. 
if you can call them that, when they largely sounded like the sort of thing a cab driver would garble at you while you have to keep pointing out things he's about to crash into. Batten, obviously, isn't happy about what the Conservatives are doing with Brexit. He insisted that only one party has published a full Brexit plan, and that is UKIP, and he said, I would know, I wrote it. Of course, he didn't say what was involved in the speech, as we all know the key to having a good Brexit plan is to not let anyone know any details about your good Brexit plan in case it doesn't actually exist. According to an interview he did with the Financial Times, Batten told them that he could sort out Brexit in an afternoon over a cup of coffee and it'd include continued free movement of goods, services and capital, but an end to freedom of movement, therefore cherry-picking what he wants from the EU's unmovable four freedoms and ultimately causing his plan to definitely not work like May's one fell down this week. But hey, why interrupt someone's fevered dreams? And other than that, uh, his speech was mainly just some complaining about first-past-the-post voting system, which doesn't serve UKIP well, and I think that's probably the only good argument for keeping it. And then the rest of the conference was largely Paul Oakley, UKIP's immigration spokesperson, saying that Indigenous people are a minority in London, and so I'm looking forward to his campaign to persuade all the Cockneys that moved out to Essex years ago to give up their homes and spend twice the amount to live in a studio flat cupboard in Dalston. Should be easy. There were comments about Muslim-only prisons, which, as well as being racist, wasn't at all backed up uh, with prison funding or prison building schemes, and some internet wankers banged on about free speech, while people in other rooms were trying to limit what interpretations of the Quran can exist in the UK and the health risks of homosexuality. Brilliant. UKIP campaigning for human rights, except for those people we don't think of as human. But this is where they now lie on the political spectrum, with the Conservatives steaming ahead on UKIP's policies of both Brexit and generally being hostile to non-white people. So where does that leave UKIP? Having to stand over on the far right with the sort of dog whistle that would cause a mass recreation from homeward bound. Seems UKIP's future is very much embedded in the past, like a horrible fossil that absolutely no one wants to ever discover. And lastly for this week, the Labour conference, which is only a few days in, and so I'll do more of an update on this next week. And yes, it is already mostly the party finding new and exciting ways to tell each other that they're wrong. The centrist side of Labour have already condemned Dawn Butler for her statements about rebellious Liverpool councils of the 80s. Keir Starmer has already contradicted Corbyn and McDonald's views on a people's vote. Jewish Labour MP Luciana Berger has had to have a police escort because of threats against her. And Barry Gardner has already said McDonald expecting Theresa May to call a snap election is Looney Tunes territory. And yes, he's right. All of this is Looney Tunes territory because the Labour Party seem intent on Acme politics, i.e. ones that constantly blow up in their own faces. In amongst all of this self-loathing, though, are some actually radical ideas, albeit ones that would take a dramatic shift in British politics to make. For example, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell announced that he plans to force all companies with more than 250 employees to put 10% of their equity into a fund for workers. Each employee would get dividends of up to £500 a year, with the rest going into public services. So that's about £4.5 billion a year in shares divided over 10.7 million workers, and the public funds would be about £2 billion, which is absolutely loads. And this all follows studies that show that workers have been getting less and less of companies' money for many years, with more and more of it going to shareholders who do absolutely nothing instead. According to the chief economist at the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, he did a study in 2015 that said workers' share of national income was 70% in the 70s, but only 55% now. And if wages have been kept in line with productivity throughout the 90s, the average worker would be 20% better off right now. So Labour are actively saying they want the people doing the work to get the dosh, while those who sit on their bums all year swanning around Monaco should have less. And that is cool with me, and I, it's going to pose an interesting challenge to the Conservatives, who, if they attack it, are saying that workers shouldn't have 
more money. But if they don't attack it, then they are supporting their largest donors losing a lot of funds. It's effectively a political snookering, which could be quite powerful if the Tories' tactics continue to be arguing over who knows how to play best and taking it in turns to have the black ball removed from the table entirely. Though, it's not going to make any businesses want to queue up to pop their 50p's on the table. And that is all the snooker analogies I have, and that is my cue to stop. Cue. Other than that, uh, McDonald's speech talked about nationalising the water companies, which surprised me as I didn't think he believed in trickle-down economy and drip-feeding the public. Uh, Shadow Education Secretary Angela Rayner said Labour would immediately end the Academy and Free Schools programme, and the Housing Minister John Healy announced plans to give tenants more power, um, as in people who rent, like myself, not as in the already far too powerful lager. That would be hugely irresponsible. Can you, I mean, can you imagine? That stuff is potent. But the main conversation over the next few days will, of course, be Brexit, and exactly where Labour should stand on that, or if they're just going to continue to sit to the side, hoping someone else does something first so they can leap in last minute and clean up the wreckage. Jesus, they just never stop being about the manual work, do they? Give it a rest. And now, back to Steve. Sure, I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting in the way that um, uh, that Brexit itself was uh, the example of kind of an effective protest, whether you were sort of uh, pleased Absolutely. with the results or not. But it was yeah. a real challenge yeah. against the system. Um, yeah. And now we're in an issue where the sort of, uh, I mean, and I, I agree, I think the divisions are changing slightly. But, you know, now we're in an issue where the two divisions would like to protest about different things, which led to a stalemate for quite a long time, yeah. Yeah, and that, of course, is what we're seeing with Trump as well, is that it's all very well that, you know, one large chunk of people are saying, here's the list of things which are completely intolerable, but, you know, on the other side, there is a, a large chunk of people who feel that he is, you know, uh, I mean, it's an absurd concept, as seen by me, but kind of, quote, unquote, as it were, speaking truth to power, you know, like, or, or speaking up for the ordinary man. That's the most, you know, for me, the most extraordinary belief. But there are many people in the United States who genuinely believe that Trump is speaking up for the little guy. Now, I and many others would argue that's the most extraordinary analysis of the situation because the last person he really has in mind is the little guy in, in all of his both attitudes and policies. But he has managed <coughs> successfully to create that kind of narrative. Um, and so you're right, you, you have two different competing narratives and, and sometimes one is just kind of manages to sell itself more attractively than the other. Do you think um, just sort of, sort of mentioning Trump as well? That, that, like, I think w- one of the interesting things was with the Trump march here. Um, a lot of people came out because while there's a lot of issues that Trump brings, we all know it's kind of his fault. <laughs> we can march against the one thing. Um, I found yeah. in the last few years there's been a lot of people, uh, or I've, I've heard complaints about the fact that there's so many online petitions to fill in. There's so many things yeah. to complain about that they don't really know what to focus on. Do, do, just has yeah. kind of the internet and social media and that has that made it harder due to kind of distraction for, for people to get protests together or has it yeah. actually helped I, I, i'm really torn on this it's so interesting well, i think you're completely right to be torn and to be honest if you come across anyone who says the actual answer is a and not b or the actual answer is b not a that's the only person i would completely disagree with because that completely misunderstood it's an incredibly interesting mix i think so um, to start with the first bit of your question, I mean, yes, I mean, what, what is sometimes called clicktivism, but that sense that you don't really need to do anything, you go, yeah, I'm really unhappy about this. 
and I'm really unhappy about that, and I'm really unhappy about that, and I will quit each of these petitions, and then I'll kind of, you know, go off and have a flat white night friends and, and, and forget, either forget all about it, or perhaps more importantly, feel I have done what needs to be done, because I have clicked on all these different things. So, there's one, and there is something real about that, of, you know, if you are just kind of picking something without getting engaged, then probably that hasn't been um, terribly helpful. And the other narrative that we saw, especially during, for example, the Arab Spring and some stuff that happened in Egypt where Facebook was like, I mean, I saw it in the, on the walls of Cairo um, when I was there shortly after the, the revolution. And Facebook was the, the slogans praising Facebook because what did Facebook mean in shorthand? It meant that you could have knowledge of what was happening. You had two kinds of knowledge. You could see solidarity immediately. You could go, oh, my God more than a million people have already signed up for this or liked this. And of course, you could also tell you, you know, we will be having a demonstration on day X at this place, or don't go to this thing in real time, you know, this is happening here, do this, do this, don't do that. That sense of knowledge, and also we saw it, you know, in Syria, we have so many bad outcomes, but one of the things that we're seeing in any set what started as peaceful protests. In the meantime, of course, has turned into this truly horrendous conflict. Um, but what was very interesting about was just knowledge of what was happening up the road. All of those things are much easier in a social media world than in the old world where you might have somebody who might get something out of some radio station, but fundamentally information didn't travel in the same way. And that sense of being able to share both knowledge uh, share images and video, which of course is extraordinarily powerful for look what's happening, both in the positive or the negative sense. Look what terrible things the authorities are doing, or look how many the people are in the town that's just up the road. None of that could have existed in, in the same vivid way, uh, you know, with the state controlling the, 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 the media and the TV, but that, that changes. So those things were real, and it was interesting, back in 20. 10, Malcolm Gladwell, that, you know, very distinguished writer who's written, you know, many brilliant bestsellers on different themes and, and is a very kind of creative thinker. But he wrote what is, for me, the most extraordinary piece in New Yorker, um, which was basically how all of this stuff about social media having any relevance is all completely pointless. Real protest, he says, and he went back to the civil rights movement in the United States, which of course did extraordinary things with very little communications possibilities, or I think he referred to Poland as well within that, you know, saying this is what it's about, it's proper courage, whereas he implied this social media stuff was just, you know, a few Western students um, you know, frittering their time away as they sat in a cafe and was not really relevant. Of course, there's bits of that, but he, it was an extraordinary time. He wrote that when actually the social media movement in Egypt was already beginning to gain momentum. It had started especially earlier in 2010. Um, we are all Khaled Saeed with a big Facebook page, which was to do with uh, the killing of one Egyptian by um, police in public, basically. Um, and that caused a huge wave of revulsion. And he completely, there he is writing very confidently how this is all pointless. And that was only less than two months before the Arab Spring began with Tunisia, then Egypt and so on. So that 
completely scoffing narrative, and I mentioned him, but there were many others who've come with this scoffing narrative, um, that it's somehow only about the little things. The answer is it's about both. And of course, social media doesn't change the whole world. You still need the same courage. You still need the same determination to do things. And basically, it's just the latest communication thing, which has also transformed things. I mean, within my lifetime, um, mobile phones, you know, now we feel mobile phones have been with us forever. And it's kind of difficult to remember how on earth those of us who grew up in a, in a pre-mobile phone world, how on earth we ever made arrangements <laughs> or find about anything. Uh, and I think you really did. You traveled through Europe and you were made rendezvous with people. And then if they didn't meet you, somehow you managed both to make arrangements and fallback arrangements and all of these things. Um, but, you know, the arrival of the mobile phone made a huge difference for organizing protests. Before that, of course, the arrival of the telephone made things easier. So when I was living in Poland, very few people even had landlines. I mean, mobile phones didn't exist, obviously. Um, but, you know, within a communist country, very people had landlines. So in those days, it was radio that people found, foreign radio stations, if they were able to listen to or talking to your neighbor, going back beyond that, and so on and so forth. So as you roll back each thing, the telephone, the radio, the mobile phone, the internet, the video that can be shared and social media, each of those changes the possibility of protest and social media certainly does it in a very significant way. But if we just think, oh, that's the be all and the end all, you know, because now we can click and therefore, then of course you've lost the plot a bit because it's not. You need to have that engagement, that determination to create change. And although the methods have changed, the need for commitment is basically the same as it ever was. I mean, it's it sort of it's always interesting as well that, that certain things do rise up above the simply petition level, like things like the March for Women or the March Against Trump. They they kind of went yeah. crazy on social media and people realised, oh, wait, no, this is actually an important one. You know, you get a sort of feel for it, don't you? In, in, exactly. In There's something which is organic. I mean, off random, that's true of many different things. I mean, it's true, you know, in my journalistic career, I saw many occasions where what I could just call the chemistry of it, of something something which is obviously an important story but doesn't kind of get reported much and it doesn't get reported and then some random event happens that suddenly triggers that thing and everyone goes oh my god this is really important and it might have been ignored for months before that. The Ethiopian famine of 1984 is one example of that. The Rwandan genocide barely got covered when it started. It needed other things to put it down. Lots of uh, strange things than that and so, yeah, no, I think it's, uh, there's, there's things which make something happen, which we can't always guess at. Trayvon Martin, who was the young kid who was uh, killed while walking home from the supermarket with a couple of um, soft drinks in his hand um, uh, a few years ago in Florida. A young black boy killed, the guy who killed him uh, was originally not expected to face any, who, who was the, the, the local um, uh, protecting that estate, as it were, um, and, and drew his gun on this guy, boy, and, and killed him. Initially, that was going to have absolutely no consequences at all. And then the family and their friends started a change.org petition. And initially it got some and they got a few more and they got a few more. And at a certain moment that started kind of rolling as an avalanche and it's very possible that many of your listeners may also have, you know, signed up for that petition, uh, which you know spread well beyond Florida, well beyond the US, it went global, got millions in the end. And you then have Barack Obama himself saying, you know, 
if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. And the whole thing became a national drama. And in a sense, that was the, the prehistory. The phrase wasn't used at that point, the hashtag of Black Lives Matter. But in a sense, Trayvon Martin's case was the very, very beginning of that focused Black Lives Matter movement, which has had such importance in the last few years. So that goes back to the social media thing. I mean, you could never have guessed, and for sure the family didn't guess. You know, they knew that they and the people around them cared, and some other people cared. But somehow, and, 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 and there were, of course, other cases like Trayvon Martin, which didn't take off in the same way. But when it does take off, that does have, and later, you know, there was a trial. Now the trial actually ended up with, you know, very controversial outcomes, and, and you know, there was no, there was never actually a conviction um, on on that case. But nonetheless, it raised issues, and one of the significant reasons it raised issues was simply because millions said something needs to happen on this. Yeah, it was incredibly inspiring that as well. I mean, it's it, again. I suppose the message is you've you've got to just do it, and you've got to just put it out there, and you, you can't be. Yeah. Uh, dissuade. And I mean, I have to say also, just not to belittle anything, but reading about the uh, protest in Thailand where they protested by eating sandwiches, that has inspired me immense amounts. I think I will happily eat sandwiches in protest of many, many things for the I rest of it. my life. Exactly. I love that story. And, you know, for this people, oh, what's that about? I mean, that's, I, I do love that story because it's deliberately so tiny that basically it started with with the military junta in poland who were saying people weren't allowed to gather in public places and so even the picnic became a kind of defiance and so people said okay just eating a sandwich and they would deliberately do it in a very demonstrative kind of way and people did actually get arrested for eating sandwiches or for reading books with the other ones they would read books in public and say you have a trade and how do you make the difference between someone who's merely in the ordinary sense, having a sandwich, and someone who is deliberately and demonstrative. So those tiny little things, I, I, I love the, the way that you can turn things upside down, basically. Another of my favorite stories is from um, Belarus, sometimes described as the, the last dictatorship in Europe, where people started clapping the president very demonstratively and ended up, of course, being arrested because the authorities knew perfectly well it couldn't be serious about clapping the president, so therefore they were being ironic, and so you, you actually get you get arrested for praising your own leader because people know that you can't mean it. That's a kind of, that's a lovely little bit of irony and humor. And again, those people faced, you know, beatings and, and, and arrests and all of those things, but they felt it was worth having done it because that little quirky kind of sense of defiance, you know, unsettled the regime at least for a moment and, and to some extent in the longer term as well. Thank you to Steve for that fascinating chat. And seriously, um, his book is excellent. I read it in a very short amount of time, uh, just blitzed through it, inspired by so many of the events he writes about and the brilliant pictures... Um and the brilliant pictures he's compiled of them. Uh, the book is called Street Spirit, The Power of Protest and Mischief, and it can be found in all bookshops, good, bad or ambivalent, and also via the website street-spirit.net. Um, and he's told me that Arabic, Turkish and Chinese editions are all coming out very soon too. So uh, Steve can be found on Twitter at Steve Crawshaw, uh, C-R-A-W-S-H-A-W. And as I mentioned, um, I spoke to him all about his role at Freedom From Torture 2, which I'm going to be popping on an extra podcast this week, uh, which also contains all of Steve's follow recommendations about protests and torture stuff um obviously anti-torture stuff not like his favorite torturers that would be 
that would be really weird. Um, so anyway, all that information should hit your pod apps later this week. Um, also, as I mentioned before, may I recommend going back to episode 85, uh, where I spoke to Sarah Corbett about craftivism, which was another very inspiring chat about creative ways to protest. Um, and you can check out all her TED Talks online as well, all of which make me incredibly inspired at the same time, make me feel like the laziest person on earth. Um, very worth uh, a watch. You have been sending in excellent guest recommendations. Well done, you. Thank you for that. And please do keep sending in more um, because sometimes I email people and they never reply or they do reply, but they can't do it or they can't work out how talking over the internet works because, you know, they're too busy changing the world or they just hate me. Um, so send those recommendations to me and I promise I'll try and get them on. And if I don't manage, uh, it is because I hate you and your stupid ideas. I mean, sorry, it's because they're too busy to talk to this mug, this mug full of warm, furry coffee. And um, so you can send those suggestions to me via the Twitter at Parpolbro, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contacts page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or via email at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could form your own protest where you just refuse to listen to this show until I get the guests that you wanted. And um, I'll never, ever notice because podcast stats aren't that detailed and are generally rubbish. I mean, really rubbish. All I really know about you is that absolutely no one listens to this show on a Wednesday. And I don't know why. That's weird, isn't it? Loads on Tuesday, loads on a Thursday, quite a few on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Not Nothing. Nothing on a Wednesday. No idea. I mean, I guess it's hump day, isn't it? So maybe you're all too busy um, humping. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there. Look, basically... It is much easier just to email. Oh no, I've run out of time! This show uh, this week has too much in it. So super quickly, here are some things that I didn't have time for. Saji Javid has ruled out buffer zones for protesters outside abortion clinics because apparently they only take place at a few facilities and are usually passive, says Javid. Yeah, sure, mate. Personally, I would insist on signs around each clinic saying, protesters, stand where you like, as we are pro-choice. I think that would put them off pretty quickly. A migration advisory report commissioned by the government says people who move from the UK to the EU have no real impact on workers' wages, they pay more in taxes, have no bad impact on schools, they're not linked to crime, and they pay more to the NHS than they use. Um, they sound brilliant. I reckon we should get loads of them in to cope with all the skill shortages we'll have due to Brexit. They'll fix things in no time. Theresa May says people who live in council homes should be made to feel proud of them, which sounds a bit... Abrest- uh, which sounds a bit aggressive. I mean, how will she make them do that? Is she turning up to their house and not leaving till she's made them put one of those wanky prints that says something like, home is where the heart is, in their hallway? That's a bit much. The government is going to put £2 billion into building new homes in England, which is great as they cut housing funding by £6 billion just between 2010 and 2015. So this is like a fraction of what's needed. I mean, basically, so many of their policies are just half-heartedly fixing things they've already ruined. I'm fairly sure their next plan is going to be to demolish all public swimming pools and then announce a new fund for some ticketed inflatable paddling pools in public parks just to make people proud of swimming. And that's all, folks, for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. I am honoured you chose to use these sounds as a backdrop to your commute or jousting practice or bare-knuckle fighting or bare wrestling or just sitting, drinking furry coffee. Um, thank you for that. And please do subscribe to the show, listen in next week, and tell people you know and like to listen in too. And if you can, please donate to the Kofi or Patreon pages, review the show, and hey, write me an email to partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com. You don't even have to send it. You can just write it. It's the thought that counts. And I'll know you've had a thought because I am politically correct thought police. 
Thank you to Acast for being sound parents to this audio orphan. Thank you to my brother, the Last Skeptic, for the tunes. To Cat Day or at Chronicle Flask for the linear notes. And to my other half, at Pro Resting, uh, for the interview transcribing and child juggling. I mean, not literally. She's not out there with our daughters and beanbags just seeing how often she can keep them all up in the air. I should have probably said child wrangling, shouldn't I? No, wait. No, that sounds bad as well. Uh, basically, every Monday I do this show and therefore do no dadding at all. And my wife very kindly deals with all poo and crying issues all day. And she looks after her daughter as well. <laughs> I did a pooing crying joke. Anyway, uh, she's now doing a daily blog, so follow her on Twitter at ProResting to find that. Go on, do it. Go on, do it. And have a little read. Uh, this show will be back next week when I'll be reporting on Jeremy Corbyn's conference speech where he's going to stumble while saying Tory lies and instead say hoary rabbis, causing everything to kick off until days later Theresa May manages to divert attention by farting and burping at the same time throughout her speech until she unveils the party's new slogan about Britain on a global stage and the platform she's standing on caves in. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Vince Cable's Exotic Presence, a new scent from the Liberal Democrat leader that makes you give off the sort of smell that lets everyone know you really don't want to be there. Exotic Presence, a weak smell of dying embers for when you have nowhere else to be but really wish you did. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.